Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Continuing on in our exposition, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Please join with me in prayer. Blessed Lord Jesus, we come before Thee again, O Lord. We thank Thee for the singing of psalms and hymns. We thank Thee that we can lift up our soul unto Thee, O Lord. God, now we come before Thee, our great God and Savior, the firstborn of the dead, in whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we come to Thee. We bow before thee now as thy word is preached. Lord, help thou me to be but a mouthpiece for thy truth. Lord, guide my words and open up our hearts, our ears, our understanding to receive the truths of our great faith which thou hast given us in thy word, O Lord. Lord, be with us. Guide us by thy Holy Spirit. Lord, that thou would be honored, that thou would teach us how to walk by faith, how to look to thy Son, Jesus, how to live by the power of thee, O Holy Spirit, relying upon thy guidance, thy grace, thy mercy, thy power. That we would put on the full armor of God in these evil days, O Lord. That thou wouldst help us to apply the armor to ourself. By faith. By grace. That we would live unto thee and die unto thee, O Lord. Help us to put to death our flesh and be true Sons and daughters of the King, through adoption which is in Christ Jesus, we need Thee, O Lord. We bow before Thee. We ask for Thy help, Thy kindness, and Thy guidance. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Title of this afternoon's sermon is the call to follow Jesus or man fishers employed. Dear congregation, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian? Some people like to say reckless abandon. But in Christianity, we do not have reckless abandon for he has given us laws, statutes, guidelines. We have reverent abandon in following Christ. We give ourselves wholly over to Jesus and walk by faith and not by sight. We rely and lean upon his word and his teachings and the guiding of his Holy Spirit, the power of his Holy Spirit 
as followers of him. We do not just wing it. That's why we hold to something called the regulative principle of worship at this church. We let God dictate how God is worshipped. We do not try to come up with how God is worshipped. We look to his word, his guidelines. And with reverent abandon, we give ourselves fully over to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might live for him, by him, and to him. That is what it means to be a disciple. That is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to love him. It's to adore him. It's to take him to ourselves as our soul's love. To the exclusion of all other loves. To the exclusion of all other lovers. Just like in a wedding service. When we talk about the gospel. We talk about the bride of Christ. And a marriage simply being an emblem before us. Of Christ and his marriage to his bride. That when a man and woman are married, they choose their spouse to the exclusion of all other lovers. So too, a disciple of Jesus Christ chooses Jesus Christ as the love of their soul, the passion of their soul, the God who rules over them to the exclusion of all other false gods, the exclusion of all other love, all other joy. And it is a blessed and joyous and fruitful endeavor to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Let us read Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. This is right after Jesus baptized of John the Baptist. Then he comes preaching after John is put in prison, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And now here in verse 16, we see his first calling of disciples in the gospel of Mark. Verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Let's look at three points in our sermon today. Number one, who is called? Who was called? Number two, what that calling was. What the calling was. Two. Three, the response to the calling. So who was called? What the calling was? And the response to that calling. First, who was called? Well, that's shown to us in verses 16 and verse Verse 16 and verse 19. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother. And then in 19. When he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. So the persons called are Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John. These are the first disciples called here. They were previously disciples of John, though, if you recall. We see this in 
John chapter 1, verse 35 and following, talking about the first disciples of John the Baptist. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist's role, his calling, his ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. And he only amassed disciples unto himself so that he could point them to Christ, right? Behold the Lamb of God, he said, who taketh away the sins of the world. His job, his mission was to point away from himself that he might decrease and Christ might increase, to point them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Andrew, Peter, James, and John were previously disciples of John the Baptist. But after the Baptist had prepared the way for Christ, and he was imprisoned, like we saw in verse 14, now Jesus, the one whose ministry John prepared men for, comes to them. Jesus now comes to them. They had learned the doctrine of Christ, of the coming Messiah, from John the Baptist. They learned about Jesus, but now they are called to learn about Christ's person and ministry intimately as his followers and not John the Baptist's followers. And that teaches us, dear church, we must know him, not about him, not about him. I mean, we're a confessional church. We put a high premium on reading, on studying, on teaching the deep truths of God's word, theology. But we can never substitute knowing Jesus Christ himself experientially, intimately, with knowing about Jesus. They're two very different things. So previously, they'd known about Jesus through John the Baptist's ministry. Now, they are called by Jesus to know him intimately and follow him. Also, we learn that like John the Baptist, the goal of every gospel minister is to direct the eyes and the hearts of their hearers to Christ. That is my job. That is my calling. Is day in, day out, to labor until Christ be formed in those who I am given to by God. To you, to labor day and night in study and preaching and counseling and teaching to see Christ formed in you. To point your eyes and your hearts to Jesus Christ. That is my calling. That is the calling of every gospel minister. To preach Christ. To preach Jesus and not themselves. And so to you who hear sermons, you who hear teaching, you who hear Christ lifted up, must then improve those sermons to the edification of your soul. Find Jesus in it. Hear Jesus. See Jesus. And then take him as your own. Go to him. Do not waste a sermon. Do not waste the time you have while you hear a sermon. But take Jesus in it and bring him unto yourself. Just like I should not waste any time I am given to preach, preaching about other things. But ultimately, it should all be geared towards preaching Christ and him crucified. Don't waste it. Their employment. Who were these men? What did they do? They were fishers. They were fishers. They were men of common estate. They were workers. They were laborers. God does not call the great, does he? He calls the lowly and the meek. That his wisdom, his power might be known. If you go over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, we see an example of this. Apostle Paul reminding the Corinthians who they were. He says to them, 
For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He doesn't call the great, those who are thought highly of by men as a standard. He calls the lowly. He calls the meek. He calls these fishermen. Jesus did not then go to the Sanhedrin after John the Baptist baptized him. And he embarked on his ministry. He didn't go to the Sanhedrin to get the best studied students of the Bible. He didn't go to the temple to get the best priests. He didn't go to the synagogues. He didn't go to the palace. He went to fishermen. Fishermen. Let us therefore not despise, dear church, our present employments, whatever they might be. Let us make good use of where God has put us. God's higher calling comes to those who make good use of their present labor. Who make good use of their present lower callings. That is who God calls to higher callings. We must be faithful in the little to be entrusted with the greater, as Jesus Christ himself says. It is observable throughout the scriptures, we can see this time and time again, that God calls men to places of dignity and honor. And his appearances of favor to them have ordinarily come to those of low estate. And when they are busied in the honest employments of their calling. So while they're already doing something, while they're already being faithful to the little that they have, that's when God comes and gives them something more. Remember, King Saul, before he was King Saul, was out seeking his father's asses. David was keeping his father's sheep. And it's when they were doing that that the Lord called them to the kingdom to be kings. The shepherds, on the night of Christ's birth, were out feeding their flocks. They were tending their flocks. And that's when the revelation of Jesus Christ came to them. The prophet Amos was called while working amongst the herdsmen of Tekoa. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was at the receipt of custom, meaning he was working as a tax collector, stealing from his countrymen. But he was working. Moses, when keeping Jethro's flock, he was called then. Gideon from the threshing floor. And Jesus here calls four men to the apostleship while they are yet fishers. God never encourages idleness, dear church, to be idle. He doesn't encourage that. However, he does not despise persons when they're in the midst of their meanest employments. Whether you're digging ditches, washing dishes, or serving in the king's palace, God's not going to despise it. He's not a respecter of persons, but he honors diligent work. They were not idle. But they were employed in the business of fishing. God blesses industrious lifestyles, does he not? In Proverbs 13, verse 4, the Bible says, The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. He blesses those who work hard in what is in front of them. So let us be found doing whatever God has put us in. Let's not be pining after more. Part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is being satisfied in what he has given you now. In what he has given us to do now. 
Not always looking to that next great thing. But what is in front of you right now? People often come to me and ask me, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, what are you doing? What doors are open in front of you right now? What are you employed at right now? That is God's will for your life. Do what is in front of you well and to the glory of God. You don't have to go find some next big thing. That's God's will for you. Idle people, when people are idle, when they're lazy, when they're not employed in some business, they lie more open to the temptations of Satan than they do to the callings of God. If you're just sitting around doing nothing, Satan's voice is much louder. The temptations of the flesh, the temptations of Satan are much easier to follow. And God doesn't often call those who are sitting around doing nothing. But he does call those who are making good use of what he has given them already. An example of this. Remember King David? King David. He was found idle when he fell into the greatest sin of his entire life. Namely his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. And it came to pass... After the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon, and besieged Rabbath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. It's when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, and David stays back and sends his, sends his servants to go fight. Then what happened? He's twiddling his thumbs, wandering around, gets into trouble. When we're idle, Satan's callings come to us. Satan's temptations. When we're busied with what God has given us, not making yourself busy. Busyness for the sake of busyness is not a virtue. But being busy, being employed in what God has given you and what is in front of you and for his purposes and his glory is something to be praised. And God will honor it and will call you to something higher. Second point. What the calling was. So who was called? Well, these four disciples of John the Baptist were called to the apostleship. Now, what was the calling? Verse 17, we see the calling. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Fishers of men. So notice first, their calling was to follow Jesus. Come ye after me, he says. What is it to follow Jesus other than to Choose Christ to choose his teachings, his ways, his sufferings, and his commands over all else. That's what it means to follow Jesus. They were called to give themselves no longer to their present employment as fishers, but to the employment which Jesus would give them. He comes to us all who have been saved at one point or another and calls us wherever we're at, whatever we're doing. His voice comes and he says, come Follow ye me. Christ called them to follow him. Not the course of this world. Not the most popular theological trend. Not the desires of the flesh. Not the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. And not the culture around them. But him. Amen. He said, follow me. Don't follow the 689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I love the 689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't think there's anything wrong in it. That's my opinion. However, I follow Jesus Christ, not Reformed Baptists. We follow him. We follow him. 
Come ye after me. We cannot put our hand to the plow as Christians. The plow of Christ's calling. And yet keep our head behind us. Looking back to the world and its pleasures. We must count the cost. And consider what Christ has actually required of us in following after him. You must do this. He is requiring what? Our all. Our all. Our heart above all else. Luke 14.26, Jesus says this. If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Those harsh words, it seems. What does he mean by that? Does he mean you actually have to figure out how to hate your family? Figure out how to hate the people around you? No, that's not what he means. He's talking about in comparison to the love which you have to Christ, it appears as though you hate everything else. That's what he means. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to come after Jesus? Some of you here have read John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Some of the opening pages we see what it is to follow Jesus. That as his wife and his children come out after Pilgrim, after he comes to an understanding of Jesus Christ and his calling, and becomes a disciple, they come out of the door begging him to come back. Stay in the city of destruction with us. Please, we love you. We'll miss you if you leave us. What does he do? As all the people come out to mock, to beg him to stay, he sticks his fingers in his ears, and he runs as fast as he can to the heavenly city, screaming, Life! Life, eternal life, forsaking all else, hating father and mother, hating wife and children in comparison to Jesus Christ. That is what it is to follow Jesus. The calling of Christ is a calling of self-denial, self-rejection. What is the tendency of the sinful flesh Sinful flesh and Satan's temptations. Well, it is to elevate self. Elevate me. Have a self-help section in your life. It's to elevate self with all of its passions, its lusts and desires as the highest end in life. Rather than God, rather than Jesus. That is the temptation of self. And that is what we're called to fight against, self-denial. Now we see that this lifting up of self was the end goal of the fall and to sin itself. To elevate self above all else as the chief goal. Remember, Satan told Eve that she, quote, shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. So she saw that it was good for lifting up self. I'll be wise. It's good for food. It's good for the body. It's good for lifting myself up as a god. Very different from Christ's call in Matthew 16. Verses 24 through 26, where Jesus says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross, his instrument of death, self-denial, where he dies to self. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it. 
And whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That's Christ's calling. Very different than Satan's. You'll be wise. You'll have everything you want. Interesting. Self-denial. Sinful self. You've heard this voice. Sinful self says, If I indulge in my desires, if I put myself first, if I attain to pleasure, luxury, satisfaction, contentment, then what else do I need? If I just had that house in Gilbert, that car, the children, the dog, the money, what else would I need? I will have gained the world. What, does my, what is my soul to me if I gain all that stuff that I want? It's immediate. It's right here. I can put my hands on that. That's tangible. What is my soul to me? My soul is for the next world. I've got plenty of time to figure that out. But my desires here and now, I need these. I need these here and now. This is for this world. I shall have plenty of time to consider the next world. For now, I'll just store up my treasures in this life. This I will do, maybe the sinful soul says to itself. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But what is Christ's response to such a soul? To such a person who reasons like this, who has these thought processes, what does Jesus say? He says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these goods be, which thou hast provided? That's what Jesus says. Christ calling for all who would come after him to deny themselves comes with a true understanding in those who follow him that the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but that he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Christ's disciples are like the Apostle Paul, who realized that it was far better to depart this present world and to be with Christ, yet understood the need to remain and complete the work which God had given him. True disciples understand this, that the world is nothing. That what we can possibly obtain here, any pleasure, is nothing in comparison to Christ. And that it would be better to die and be with Christ. However, they know that the call to follow him is here and now as well. We don't neglect the world and the calling that we have in it. We follow God in it. We follow Christ in it. The soul who follows Jesus is one who earnestly desires to be clothed upon with the house which is from heaven. And is willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The one who follows Jesus is the one who can say, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The soul who follows Jesus can echo with the Apostle Paul in saying that they count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. But that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. That is what a disciple of Christ, someone who follows Jesus, says. doesn't mean they're always able to say that perfectly, but that is the heartbeat of their life. That is that the soul and substance of their regeneration. They consider Christ of greater value than anything else. Yet true followers of Christ also know that they must remain here in this world, in this earthly tabernacle, until the Lord Jesus calls them to their heavenly home to accomplish the work which he has given them to do. If such were not the case, when we got saved, we'd just drop over dead, go to heaven. But that's not what happens, is it? No, we are left here to fulfill the work that he has given us to do, to follow Jesus. How does one do this? How does one do this? Well, it's by having the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Take every thought captive to Christ, according to the scriptures. It's by realizing that they are crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless they live. Yet not they, but Christ who liveth in them. And the life which they now live in the flesh, they live by the faith of the Son of God who loved them and gave themselves Gave himself for them. This brings us to the next aspect of following Jesus. They were called to become fishers of men. They were called to self-denial. They were also called to become fishers of men. Now this is the particular call of the minister of the gospel. To which these disciples were called. They were called off from being fishers into the apostleship. It is the duty of gospel ministers to make followers of Jesus. That's why we're here. Notice, though, that Jesus uses their current employment as an allegory for their new calling. Fishers of men. Fishers of men. Now, Jesus often, Jesus often does this throughout the gospels. He uses earthly pictures and his parables and his spiritual allegories to teach spiritual truths. He uses earthly examples. And this teaches them humility, these fishers. Teaches them humility. They were given new honor as fishers of men, no doubt. But they could not be haughty. Why? They were still fishers. They were fishers of men, but they were still fishers. They also had no reason to fear their new calling. For they had been fishers all along. And though they weren't going to be fishing fish anymore, they'd be fishing souls, they're still going to be fishing. They were accustomed to fishing, and fishers they are still. Teaches them humility. Teaches them the beauty of following Jesus in the employments he had given them at the time. That now, they were simply transferring over what they were fishing for. Now, ministers of the gospel, pastors, teachers, evangelists, are fishers of men. They're called not to destroy men, but to save them. They are not called to fish for profit, wealth, and honor, or to gain for themselves through fishing, but to fish for souls, to gain them to Christ. Now, you notice, false teachers are always greedy for filthy lucre, are they not? They're always trying to get a gain. They're trying to make a buck off of preaching. They preach out of deceit for personal gain, and not for Christ's glory and the advance of his kingdom. That's always a dead giveaway of a false teacher. Where's their desire? What are they always talking about? Money. They want to gain. 
They consider godliness a means of gain rather than a means of knowing Christ, advancing his kingdom. Now notice also that the gospel itself is like a fisherman's net that was cast into the sea, we read in Matthew 12, and gathered of every kind, both the wicked and the just, both the elect and the reprobate. The gospel is preached to all ears who hear it. And it does the work it's sent to do. Now for some, when they hear the gospel, it's an aroma of death. It's a stench in their nostrils. And it's foolishness unto them. Yet to others, it's an aroma of life. The power of God unto salvation. Gospel ministers preach the gospel indiscriminately to all. Why? Because we don't know who the elect are. So we share the gospel to all. But their confidence is in God who works through the message when, where, and how he pleaseth and not in their ability to preach it. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived, came to saving faith as he was walking through a blizzard at age 14. He stumbled into a Methodist church little tiny Methodist church in order to get out of the snow and the blizzard. And they were holding a service. And he said the, the regular pastor was gone. It was some deacon or something who stood up. He was not a good preacher. He was not eloquent. He didn't know his stuff that well. But he could shout Jesus. And he preached from Isaiah. Look unto me and be ye saved. And Spurgeon says, that day I looked and I was saved. God can use the meanest preacher. Meanest being the most base, the most uneducated preacher. He does not have to use a Charles Spurgeon to save a Charles Spurgeon. He can use a country bumpkin to save Charles Spurgeon. Because it's not up to him who preaches. It's not in the power of the preacher. It's in the power of the God who works through the preached message of the preacher. Preachers are fishers of men. Gospel ministers preach the gospel and they rest in Jesus Christ to apply it. Yet all disciples of Christ, all of you, and not only ministers like myself are fishers of men. God has placed the net of the gospel into all of your hands, to all of our hands. And it is our duty to cast it out into the waters of the world. All of us have been given the net of the gospel. One of the evidences of a true believer is that they love to win souls. They have a hunger to win souls to Christ. They have a hunger to see people saved. They love their neighbor. This is what it means to repent and believe in verse 15. To follow Jesus. To proclaim him. To become a fisher of men. To become a fisher of men. This is what the work of Jesus was. It was his work. I will make you fishers of men, he says. I will make you to become fishers of men. It was the work of Christ, not of themselves. Though disciples of Christ's doctrine, they were not yet disciples of Christ's person. Yet Christ comes to them here and makes them so. It is Christ that calls men unto himself through the preached message. And he shall complete the work given to him. 
He begins it and he will finish it. He shall raise up every soul given to him by his father. I've said it time and time again and I'll continue to say it. God's wills and shalls are God's wills and shalls indeed. He will save a people. They did not decide they were going to follow Jesus. Jesus came to them. It is Christ that calls men unto himself. The general call of the gospel goes out to all who hear it, right? But the internal call is given only to those whom the Holy Spirit makes the hearing of the gospel effectual unto salvation. So it's not how well you articulate it. It is, though, the power of God unto salvation. God works when, how, and through whatever he chooses. There is a hearing dear church, that is no hearing at all. And there is a hearing with the ears that is blessed of God unto salvation. A hearing with the ears and a hearing with the heart. The Holy Spirit opens up the ears of the heart, the understanding of the soul, and enlightens it, brings it back to life. It was dead in sins and transgressions, and through the work of the power of God and the Holy Spirit, He brings men unto himself in the internal or effectual call. It is Christ who makes followers of himself, not we. This is why church growth strategies, megachurch strategies, and carnal evangelism methods are so wicked in God's sight, as well as so ineffective. Brings in a lot of dead church members, skeletons. That's it. It cannot vivify a soul. That can only be done by Christ. That can only be done by Christ. That doesn't mean every church that's big has, is bad. That's not what I'm saying. But here in America, we have so many of these church growth tactics. They replace biblical language studies in seminary or systematic theology studies or pastoral ministry studies with church growth strategies classes. I can't believe it. Who grows the church? Who grows the church? The Holy Spirit grows the church. The Holy Spirit grows the church. We cannot trick someone into the kingdom of heaven, nor entertain them unto salvation. The ears can be tickled of man ad nauseum, but only God can make the preached word a means of salvation. And this is in order That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, Romans 9, verse 11. God elects Christ's followers in eternity based on nothing in them but on his good pleasure alone. That's it. And he calls them in time through the preaching of the gospel, which is accompanied by the saving work of the Holy Spirit in them. Now this gives us great assurance. Great assurance. That if we be followers of Christ in this room, and we are, that we are followers indeed and cannot be anything else but followers of Christ. Because Christ has called us, and he has made it effectual. It also gives us great confidence in ministering the gospel to others. For it is God who calls and shall call through our gospel presentations. must be encouraged, enlivened, assured, and confident. That when we go out and share the gospel, God will use it. He will make disciples. He will make followers. If you recall, Jesus Christ came to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus. 
And he said, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And the dead man got up and walked out. He does that every time he makes a disciple. He raises the dead. Gives us great assurance to preach. It furthermore gives us great assurance in the work of Christ itself on our behalf. Our salvation is his work from beginning to end. He died for our sins. He paid our debt. Not we. And it is he who calls us to himself. We do not call him. We do not go to Christ. He calls us. And it is he who makes our calling effectual unto salvation. That should make us say, dear church, what a savior we have in Jesus. What a savior. We must only place our faith, our following faith in Christ, and we shall be his. Such is his work of salvation. Third point, the response to the calling. The response to the calling. This is in verses 18 and 20. It says, And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And straightway he called them, and they left their father's ebony in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. The response to the calling, well, they forsook all. They forsook it. They had been taught both by John's doctrine and by John's habit what it was to be a disciple of the Messiah. Now they get the opportunity to put it into practice. When Jesus calls them. It is not enough to know the truth, dear church. We must also live in accordance with the truth. It is one thing to sing, to sing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And quite another to follow when the storms of life are raging. And the cross, that splintery cross is laid upon our back. To follow Jesus then is quite a different thing than to simply talk about it. To theologize about it. And this is when faith actually matters, dear church. This is when faith actually matters. You can think you're a Christian, do Christian things, read your Bible, or raised in the church, what have you. When push comes to shove, when faith actually matters, what will you do? When life storms are raging, when things seem to be falling apart around you, when the world's going crazy... Will you follow when he calls? Will we fulfill that which he has given us to do? Will we trust when we struggle to even believe? Will we lay down our life for his cause? Will we, dear church, go into a land that we don't know? Will we love those around us? Will we put ourselves last and Christ first when times are tough? In other words, talk is cheap. Theology is cheap. The doctrine of faith is cheap until it counts. Until it counts. Until Christ actually says, come after me, forsake it. Trust me, follow me, obey me. Then that's when your faith matters. This is what it is to follow Jesus. When it actually counts. As the psalmist said, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake 
with the swelling thereof. Selah. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. When the world is literally coming undone, we will hope. God is our refuge, our strength, a present help in trouble. That's what faith is. That's what following Jesus is. Will you follow him, dear believer, when he calls you? Or will you be as those who made excuses in the Gospels? We often think our excuses are really good. No one's ever had them before. I say this a lot in counseling. Guess what? Dear church, you are not special. None of you are. You are special in the election of God, and that's it. But your circumstances are not special. You're not the first person to ever go through what you're going through. There's nothing special about your situations. People have gone through them before. And people in every of those, single one of those situations have been called to follow Jesus, and many of them have. Your excuses are no good. Remember some of these excuses and how Jesus responded. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes, this is Matthew 8, about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came unto him and said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Let the dead bury their dead. That sounds extreme, does it not? I can't make church this Sunday, I have a funeral. What if the pastor then said, Follow Jesus. Let the dead bury their dead. I don't think that would be the wisest thing to do pastorally. But you get the picture. Jesus actually said this to this man. Our excuses stink. There's no good excuse not to follow Jesus. And especially if it's because you think your excuse is unique. They followed Jesus. They followed Jesus when he called. They forsook all. Literally. They literally followed Jesus. They had the, the particular blessing of physically walking with Christ as eyewitnesses of his ministry. They walked alongside him throughout his ministry, witnessing the miracles firsthand, hearing the sermons with their actual physical ears, seeing Jesus raise the dead, feed the poor, heal the lepers, cast out demons. They left their father and their hired hands in the boat and walked with Jesus physically and literally. Now, this must have been amazing to witness, right? Sometimes we say, if I just had been there with Jesus, or if Jesus would just show up to me now, I would have no problem having faith. I would have no problem following Jesus. All my problems would melt away. Tell that to Peter. He's the worst in the Gospels. Tell that to Peter. And in fact, the Bible says something a little different. What does it say? According to Jesus Christ's own mouth, we have a far greater blessing now than to have actually walked with him. Namely, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and the Holy Scriptures. Jesus says, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Amen. 
Apostle Peter says, nevertheless, or Jesus says again, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. It's for your benefit that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And the Apostle Peter himself, who walked with Jesus, said this in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we, do not ha- for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We didn't make this stuff up. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from that excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the mountain of transfiguration which he was at. And this voice which came from heaven we heard. When we were with him in the holy mount. We also have a more sure word of prophecy than the word of God himself. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men's Holy men of God spake as they were moved along by the Holy Ghost. That's the words of Jesus Christ himself on earth and of Peter who walked with him. Jesus says, it's expedient that I go away. It's better for you to go away. So I can send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who shall not only be with you as, I, as he is now, but in you. And Peter says, I witnessed all this stuff. And you have a more sure word of prophecy, the Bible. Let's look next. The cost of following Jesus. Let us count the cost, dear church. Count the cost. Count it. So that way you will not be found to still owe. You won't have come up short of what is required of you. In Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Luke 14. And there weren't great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, All that behold it shall mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Was not able to finish. Count the cost, dear church. Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was homeless. He wandered. He was mocked, slandered, and imprisoned for following Jesus. Jesus himself was murdered, mocked, slandered, and nailed to a cross. He was forsaken. He was betrayed. And a disciple is not above his master, dear church. If they persecuted our master, they will surely persecute us. We must count the cost. Consider what will be required of you. Count the suffering. And when you do, you will realize that it is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to you in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Next, we'll see that we have joy. We have joy in following Christ. Though the cost is great... There is no greater joy. Though the apostles were persecuted and endured all of this suffering, there were no people of greater joy than the apostles. Matthew 13, 
verses 44 through 46, Jesus Christ says this, that we'll be men like the men in this parable if we understand what is required of us in following him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In following Jesus, dear church, there will be times that are sorrowful, times that are hard, but we'll also always have rejoicing. Joy, not happiness, not merriment, not chipperness, but joy. True joy. We will see the cost of following Jesus as worth it. As worth it. We will sell all that we have to obtain this great pearl. This pearl of great price. This field in which is hid the treasures of Christ. When we truly follow Jesus with reverent abandon. And not reckless abandon. We will come to know what Paul meant. When he said, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Follow Christ. Cast all aside, and you will see what it is, the great treasure that is in Christ and is Christ himself. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee once again, O Lord. We ask for thy blessing upon thy word. We ask, Lord, that thou would make us followers of thee and all which thou callest unto. In Jesus' name, amen.